Welcome to the Beyond Your Money podcast with Mike Dukovich, financial advisor and retirement income certified professional with RBC Wealth Management. Join us as we share the tools and insight that can help you take control of your money and your life. Because we believe life's greatest returns are realized when you invest beyond your money. And welcome to the Beyond Your Money podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Mike Dukovich. I'm a retirement income certified professional, a certified plan fiduciary advisor, an associate vice president financial advisor with RBC Wealth Management. For those of you who've tuned in before, welcome back. For anyone that's listening for the first time, this podcast is designed to help you take control. And we do that by not only discussing a financial topic that is timely and relevant and hopefully applicable to your own wealth plan, but we'll also discuss an important topic that goes beyond your money. Today's podcast is going to focus on the process of buying a home and specifically getting a mortgage. So many of my clients reach out to me when they're considering looking for a new home because after all, I practice what's called comprehensive wealth management. And all that really means is I want to help and I want to be at the forefront of every discussion that revolves around finance and dollars. And so buying a home is certainly one of those. And one of the things that I like to do when a client broaches that subject is to tell them what they should be doing and what questions they should be asking and help them prepare as they dive into this major purchase. And in an effort to help answer some of those questions and to perhaps give some guidance to the listeners, I've invited Kevin Giza to the podcast today. Kevin is the president of the Giza Group. And he's the originating branch manager for the Pittsburgh office of cross-country mortgage. Kevin has been recognized as a top producing loan officer here in Pittsburgh and nationally for many years with numerous corporate awards, industry nominations, and features in various publications over the last 20 years in the industry. So this will undoubtedly be one of those discussions you don't want to miss because I know that you or someone you know is going to be going through this process sometime soon. And so it's going to be worth having an understanding of the process and to know what questions you need to ask and to know what you should expect when you're getting into the mortgage process. So with that said, let's just dive right in. Again, my guest, Kevin Giza. I've known Kevin for better part of 20 years. And he is a resource that I turn to when it comes to all things mortgage. As I said, he's been in the industry for over 20 years and has recently moved his team, the Giza Group, to cross-country mortgage, which is a nationwide correspondent lender. And, And as the originating branch manager, Kevin prides himself on making sure that the mortgage experience is a positive one for his clients. He understands the process can be sometimes confusing and and certainly intimidating for everyone that's out there because you're not doing this all the time, maybe once or twice in your lifetime. And so his approach to the mortgage process is laid back, it's transparent, it's educational. Now, in addition to work and to mortgages, which we're obviously going to spend a lot of time on, Kevin is an active member of his community through the Northway Christian Community Church. He's an amateur scout for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and he is the director for the Perfect Pitch Camp for the Western Pennsylvania School for the Deaf. He's been married to his wife, Anne, for over 10 years, and together they have four children, Lena, Lola, Gio, and Rocco. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate you having me. Of course, anytime. Now, Kevin, we're going to certainly spend a lot of time talking about mortgages here, but I think it's important that we at least get to know you a little bit. As I mentioned, you're very active in in the community. And and when someone says, what do you think about Kevin? I I always point out, he's obviously a mortgage guy, but that's probably the the thing that I think about last. When I think about you, I think about three things, family, community, and baseball. Okay. So why don't you tell us a little bit about those first three things before we dive into the mortgage? Yeah, thank you. I have to say that you know, where your treasure is, is where your heart is. And so my family and my community and everything Pittsburgh has, you know, I've been born and raised here for, you know, worked in mortgages for 24 years, coached for over 13 years, scouted for almost 10. And it's just been a really pleasure, a great honor to be able to do that in the city of Pittsburgh and, and see so many of my colleagues and uh, friends and family and teammates will go ahead and go on and become successful, not only in Pittsburgh, but in life. Yeah, absolutely. Now, first of all, four kids, that's got to be crazy. You spend a lot of time with the family, I presume, with four little ones. How, how old are they now? 
Yeah, so my oldest is Lena. She is actually just turned nine. And my son, Gio, is six. He'll be seven next month. And Lola's four and Rocco is two. Man, you guys are busy and, and crazy as well. <laughs> but uh, that's <laughs> probably never a dull moment in the Giza household. Now, one of the things that I wanted to highlight, because it's such a cool event and such a cool program that you used to run um, or do run, I should say, it's the perfect pitch camp for, for the Western PA School for the Deaf. Can you tell us a little bit about that real quick before we dive in? Yeah, sure. And Mike, as when I was coaching, one of the big things that I used to preach to my players is that you don't have to go pro to give back to and through baseball. And so it's one of the initiatives that we did when we were coaching, obviously we wanted our players to become, go as far as they could in baseball and develop the best skills. And, but we also wanted to develop character and leadership in young men. And one of the things that we really prided ourselves uh, on was our community uh, involvement. And we've done a number of camps uh, for the Miracle League and uh, the Josh Gibson Foundation in the inner city. And, uh, and so through that, we just decided, hey, why don't we try our own initiative? And so I actually have some family members who are deaf, my uncle, my aunt, and then they had four kids as well. And all of them are either deaf or have severe hearing loss. And I worked with them specifically in baseball and softball and seeing how much love that they had for the game. And uh, when they were growing up and since my uh, oldest cousin uh, was a standout softball player for Fox Chapel High School, I played shortstop and batted third for the school team. And so she really uh, excelled at it. So I reached out to the school, the Western Pennsylvania School for the Deaf, and I talked to a really phenomenal guy named Aaron Noskazy, who was the uh, uh, principal or uh, COO at the time. And you know, I said, yeah, let's, let's try it out. And you know, we just basically incorporated uh, a lot of just our former players and it, the, the community involvement and support has was really really incredible i mean people from all different businesses and walks of life and everybody just couldn't get involved enough and it was such a dynamic unique event because a lot of times people who don't have disabilities may not have a chance to interact with children who have disabilities and so this gave a two-folded dynamic experience you had the, the kids coming to the camp who actually had an opportunity to interact with people, hearing people and people who could talk and things of that nature, and then also get the skills of the game and learn baseball and softball and have fun and a great experience. But then you also got the volunteers who have may have never known somebody with a disability or a child and be able to reach out and and to really change the world. I've had numerous players that have come to me afterwards and I've taken a, a role in their professional career in a service-related organization. And they said those events really impacted them when they went through that. I can say firsthand, some of the most rewarding experiences that I ever had in all of my years of baseball, and we're talking decades of baseball, came from some of those community service and giving back moments, whether it was with the perfect pitch camps or the Miracle League, and we're still heavily involved in that. Last baseball question before we dive into mortgage. What made me your favorite player that you ever coached? <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely I'm, your... I, I am definitely kidding. You do not have to answer that. <laughs> it is definitely your charismatic personality, I would say. There you go. That's it. All right, Kevin, let's get down to, to, to what everyone's listening for, and that's mortgages. So when a client or prospect comes to me and they say they're, they're considering buying a new home, a lot of times we talk about, well, how are you going to pay for it? And we obviously get into the mortgage discussion. Now, at that point, I usually tell a client, you know, you need to start thinking about how you're going to get the money. And, and at what point should a person consult with you or a mortgage provider? At what point in this process should they call? Right at the beginning. But before I get into that, I sort of wanted to say, you asked a question and your personality definitely made you my favorite baseball player. But I also had to say, throw in a 90 mile per hour fastball from the left side. It, it helps throw them from the left. I will admit that. But I appreciate that, Kevin. Mortgages, right? So they call you at the beginning. That's the best time to, to consult with you. That makes sense. So let's, let's dive into that. Why do they call you right away? Yeah, because one thing is in a very competitive housing market, when you start looking, you're usually buying. And I know sometimes people are like, oh, I'm just casually looking, I'm probably going to buy in a year. And then all of a sudden they find their dream home and they're not ready. And so we just want you to be as prepared as possible. 
And we also want you to be able to know all the information you need so that you can put in the most competitive offer and increase your chances of winning that bid for that home. Sure. That makes sense. Now, part of that process, and, and I know this, but you know, the general public might not, especially if this is their first time buying a home, but you want to get what's called pre-qualified, right? So that you can understand basically what can you afford? Can you describe what pre-qualification is and why that's important and, and what it does? Yeah, absolutely. There are two different terms that you're going to hear a lot, pre-qualified and pre-approved. And they use them interchangeably. In some places, will it'll be the same thing for some institutions. But there is a difference in uh, the industry for what's considered pre-qualified and what's considered pre-approved. So if you're pre-qualified, a lot of times you would maybe have a credit check and we'd have somebody verify your assets and run some various approvals and get you a pre-approval letter. And that's probably in Pittsburgh, that's probably what we see most of the time. And that would suffice with most of the real estate agents and sellers. And that's what they're looking for. But there is also the next step up, which is called pre-approved. And that is when you take everything that we just discussed, and then you've submitted it to an actual physical underwriter. And then the underwriter approves it, and then they give you what's called a mortgage commitment. And at that point, you could actually close within a couple of weeks from that time once you find a house. So the commitment is typically used for clients that uh, may be going through a divorce or may have had some credit issues in the past or may have had a bankruptcy or maybe had a foreclosure or had some significant life event that may have uh, impacted them to make them a little bit concerned whether they would be qualified for the mortgage. But what I think you'd see is most clients that you have decent credit, have good job history, have a lot of money saved for down payment, a lot of them are going to go the pre-qualification route. And then once uh, their offer is accepted, then they're able to go ahead and move into the actual applications. With regards to that pre-approval, let's go back a little bit. So that pre-approval basically gives a, a you know potential borrower the knowledge that they would be more, more than likely able to secure a loan from a bank, from an institution. Then they can go out and they can look for the home and they can feel comfortable that they would be able to afford it. And when I talk with a client, figuring out what that number is and getting that approval and figuring out how much they can safely borrow, we talk about their budget, right? And I always talk about the 50-30-20 rule where, where roughly 50% of your net income, your combined net income if you're married, is going to go towards the things that you can't live without. And certainly mortgage or th- that that housing payment is going to be one of those things. When we strip out mortgage or even rent in its in and of itself, I usually try to tell a client that you should try to earmark no more than roughly 30 to 35% of your net income towards a mortgage payment. Do you think that's a fair number to give someone when they're yeah, looking no, at really, how much I, should I afford? Yeah, I really appreciate that because I could tell you that most of the clients I talk to don't have anybody advising them. And I always tell people like the last thing you want to do is have a bank tell you how much you can afford because we go off of when we do our pre-approval calculations, we calculate what you can afford based on gross income before taxes and you live off a net income after taxes. So if we're doing a pre-approval and we're saying you can afford a $250,000 house on your gross income, that could be great if that's the house that you want, but it may not give you the ability to do all the other things that you have in their budget, such as financial planning, you know, taking care of child's college, vacations, everything else. So- sure. Uh, yeah. No, that makes absolute sense. Last thing about the pre-approval, I know they don't last forever. Right, there's a deadline or a timeline on those. How long do they last? And ultimately, the second part of this question, what I'm getting to purely is, what happens if you don't find a home during that time frame? What happens to that pre-approval? Yeah, great question. So pre-approvals typically last sixty to ninety days. Is usually the shelf life based on the credit report because the credit report can change and things can change as far as your income. So a lot of people get a new job, get a raise, get a decrease, change jobs, whatever. So we constantly have re-verifying that information. So it's a very simple process. If you get a pre-approval, you can go ahead and look for 60 to 90 days. And then if you still haven't found anything that you like, you could give us a call and we can get that taken care of, resubmit the application and get you a new letter right away. 
Sure. No, that makes sense. So let's just go down the line here, right? So we got pre-approved. We know what we can afford. We we know that it works within the budget and your overall wealth plan. And uh, and we find that home. We find that perfect home and we want to put a bid on it. At that point, let's just say the bid was accepted. And now we're moving down the line through the mortgage process. And now we are actually officially, we'll say, applying for the mortgage. What what are some of those things that that a buyer needs to get together? And and certainly, you know, I can tell you from personal experience over the last couple of years through through buying our home, there's a lot of stuff that the bank and that the lender is going to ask for. Can you talk about some of those things and basically help our listeners prepare ahead of time for what they are going to be expected to bring to the to the deal? One of the things I wanted to go back and just touch on during the pre-qualification, pre-approval process is a lot of clients ask me this question a lot. It says, well, I don't really want to get a credit inquiry. I've always heard that a credit inquiry is bad. And sure. you're right. When you're going to get a, apply for debt, apply for credit, there's going to be a hard inquiry. Now, Credit Karma and some of those different entities out there, do not they do not give you the true numbers. They give you what's called a soft inquiry to credit. And so the credit scores on on those particular sites may come in higher. But when you apply for a pre-approval, you're going to get what's called a, a hard pull on the credit. And so it's a hard credit inquiry. And we pull a tri-merge credit report. So there's three different bureaus, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. And we take all three of those scores, and then we use the middle score. And if you're applying with a co-borrower, then we'll take the lower of the two middle scores. And that's how we will determine what rates you're eligible for and how much money you maybe put down, what loan programs you can use. But there's really no way to get pre- truly pre-qualified without having a credit inquiry. And then one of the gotcha. other things I'll just sort of say is that you can have up to 10, I believe it's 10 lenders within 10 days pull uh, a credit report, and it's only supposed to count as one inquiry. And so, you because basically the credit institutions understand that you're going to be shopping for a mortgage. So, if you're going to be doing some shopping, that's the best time to do it. Great point. I think it's worth uh, emphasizing. You know, you, if you're going to shop around the, to various lenders, you want to kind of do it all at once. You want to spread this out because every time you do get a hard credit pull, it does ding your credit. It will come back, as you pointed out, but it's always good to you know have your credit is uh, as good as it possibly can be when you're starting this process. Now, along those same lines, as we're as we're going through the process, so we're going to dive in again to some of these things that you actually need to have. One of the one of the things that we always try to tell a client is as you're going through the mortgage process and as the bank is going through underwriting and it's looking at your possible deal, you want to avoid having any type of major credit changes during that process. And one of the things that I have seen is let's just say you're excited about the new home and you go out and you you get a new credit card to buy the furniture that's going to furnish your new home. That could possibly derail a deal. Is that right? Or how should you handle that? It sounds like you know that from personal experience. <laughs> I, I'll neither confirm nor deny that, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually a great point because once you get pre-approved, there's so many calculations that go into calculating your income and the way we uh, mortgage lender calculates your income is going to be a little bit different than your CPA would. And we use the credit report. And so what is on that credit report is going to be very important as far as what your debt load is and how much of a home you can afford and while we're verifying taxes and everything. So any new debt, the industry calls it UDD or UDM. And so UDD is a unified debt disclosure and uh, the UD, UDM is the debt monitoring. So there's actually, like I know here across country, we have a UDM that is allowed to just continue to monitor to see if there's any inquiries through the process. So during the process, sometimes we'll have sort of an inquiry say that this client got new debt and we need to know, was there new debt obtained? How much the payment is? Because that could change the whole pre-qualification. So I've had, unfortunately, some horror stories of clients that were not familiar with the process or just thought that their income was fine. And then they would go out and buy a brand new car. And originally, they didn't have a car payment. Then they take a $1,000 car payment on, and it completely voided their pre-approval application. We see it more, more frequently with furniture because everyone's buying a new house, and they're excited, and they want to furnish it. So that's one of the things that we see a lot with credit card debts and things 
things of that nature. And, and I, so I would just caution everybody, check with your mortgage professional to see what your ratios are. And if you have a deal that you can't pass up for furniture, just make sure that it's not going to affect your approval. Sure. That's a great tip. Kevin, let's talk about the stuff that you're going to have to bring to the table. So so we've made the offer. It's been accepted. You're, you've applied for the mortgage. You as the lender, is going to, you're going to ask the buyer for certain things. Let's just talk about some of those things. Let's list through some of those things that they should be prepared with. Yeah, absolutely. So typically, every it's going to depend a little bit as far as your income. So every mortgage application is going to really require the same documents from everybody. They do a really great job of trying to be consistent and fair and so that everyone could provide the same documentation. However, if you're self-employed and, and everybody's situation is unique and different, so sometimes those can be a rabbit hole that you go into where it feels like it's an endless list of documentations that's required. And so that's why we really try hard to get as much as we can up front. But at the end of the day, once the all the guidelines and regulations get reviewed by the underwriter, there could be an opportunity for them to come back and ask for additional documentation. But to answer your question, so typically if you're a wage earner uh, and you're getting paid hourly or you're a W-2 or you get a salary, then you're going to want to provide two years of your W-2s, the most recent. And sometimes you'll need three if your tax returns isn't completed yet for that current year to date. And that would confirm your income. Now, if you're getting bonus income or commission income, we may have to see the tax return for the last two years to show that. And over time, if there's deferred business-related expenses, we have to look at all that. A photo ID is just a basic information. We always really need to know. I always break it down to the three C's of lending, cash, credit, and collateral cash credit collateral. So those are really what you're going to verify. So the C for cash is going to be your assets. Where is the down payment coming from? Do you have retirement accounts, IRAs, stocks, bonds, CDs, investments? Do you have cash value in an insurance policy? Is it coming from a checking account? Is it coming from a gift from a family member? Are you selling a home to buy this home? And if so, we have to verify that. So different documentation is going to be needed for those different scenarios income. Like I, I just sort of went over wage earner, hourly, salary, employees, pretty basic. And now we have a technology within cross country where a lot of these things can be verified, where you can go ahead and sign in and give an author, you know, authorization where they can basically do verification of employments and assets through our technology, which is really cool and cuts down on some of the documentation you need. Sure. A lot of these, a lot of the current lenders are now using these more of the online tools where you can upload these things and make your life in the process a lot easier. And I guess the bottom line here is you're going to have to provide a lot of stuff. You're going to have to provide a lot of statements, a tax return, W-2s, 1099s, all that good stuff. And so it's important when you're diving into this process to be organized. And we talk about that all the time with our clients is to have your financial affairs organized because this really, this is that one time or one of the times where it's going to pay off to be organized. If you have all of those things ready to go and ideally in a PDF type of fashion that you can simply upload them to, to these portals, it, it will make your mortgage experience uh, a, a lot smoother. So with that, let's say the, the buyer has given you everything they need. It's now in an underwriting and the process continues. Can you describe that actual process, right? We've put the application in, we've given you all the stuff. Now what happens? Where's the mortgage go then? One thing I wanted to say is I couldn't agree with your last statement more because I see a lot of clients sometimes they just want to provide the, the minimum amount of information and it almost feels like we end up having to constantly, repeatedly keep dragging it out, all the stuff we need. And what I can just you know, tell my clients today is like, there's so many different monitoring systems and, and things of that nature that they're going to figure it out. And so it doesn't really do you any good to not provide the information because with the tax transcripts and the different monitoring systems and things of that nature, that we're going to find it out. And it's better to find that stuff out up front ahead of time than to go through the whole process and waste $500 on appraisal and $500 on home inspection. And then you have some type of uh, judgment or foreclosure or something out there that you knew about uh, and that we could have you know taken care of up front and gave you better advice on how to clear that up. Because I always tell my clients, it's not a matter of 
if you can get approved, it's a matter of when. So even if you filed a bankruptcy, Chapter 7, apply for a mortgage within two years from the discharge date, Chapter 13 has different rules. So no matter what you're going through, you're going to have the opportunity to have the American dream and have the ability to buy your own home and own your own home. And and it's such a great thing because as you, I'm sure you, nobody knows better than you, Mike, building wealth, your home is one of your biggest catapults to building wealth. Instead of paying somebody else's mortgage and paying rent, now you have an appreciating asset that's building equity and helping you to build your net worth. Yeah, absolutely. And it's certainly a major component of your, you know, overall wealth plan and finding a way to structure the mortgage and structure that lending is something that's very important and why your profession exists. It's vital to someone's overall wealth plan. So, you know, let's talk about all that stuff goes to an underwriter or in a processor is another person that's involved. What do these people do? What happens to the mortgage when they have it? The underwriter reviews everything, reviews the approvals, make sure that the document that we have in file is actually the documentation that is being requested. And then they order, they basically will give you what's called a mortgage commitment or approval. And that is basically that the underwriter reviewed not only our approvals, but the, the whole application, all the documents that were provided, and they're going to give you the commitment to lend. So everything looks good. You sort of got a thumbs up, ready to go. Here, and they always come back with a, a last list of items requested that they needed, a pay stub expired, a bank statement expired, and there's a property that came up on one of the checks and that we didn't have any uh, information about. Any, anything of that, that's your last chance to just clear everything up. And then at that point, once we resubmit it back to the underwriter, they issue what's called the clear to close, which is anybody in real estate, I'll tell you, those are the, the three best words that, that you could ever hear when you're working on a transaction, clear to close. And then uh, we get it into the closing department and they send all the documents to the title company. And nowadays, with the closing disclosure, you're going to be getting that a couple of weeks in advance with cross country. You have to at least get it at least three days in advance. And that's like your best estimate of what you're going to see at closing. Mm-hmm. And then we work with the title company and the title company or attorney will be the one that helps reconcile the CD. And that's basically, they're going to come in, they're doing the tax certifications, the title work all through the, the process. And then they're going to send their work and to us, our processors and our closer, and they're going to say, okay, here's all the numbers you got. Here's all the numbers we got. Let's update it. Do we match? And they're going to come to you know the decision that everything looks good. The numbers are balanced. And then at that point, you'll send out the uh, revised closing disclosure, and then you'll go to closing. And one of the really cool things that we have here is we have an ESA where we'll send you like 90% of the documents ahead of time, and you'll just sign them electronically. And when you show up to closing, you can sign three documents with the wet signature that need to be notarized by a notary up front, and then you're done. Sure. And in that closing point, Kevin, just to emphasize that, I mean, ultimately that's, that can be a pretty intimidating meeting for someone that's never done it before. I mean, you go and you sit at a table with possibly the, the seller um, or, or the seller's agent or someone that represents them. You have the someone that's actually closing and handling the transaction, handling the paperwork. And it seems like you're signing a hundred times. So it can be an intimidating process, but all of the work is done before that. Really, you're already at that point, you're signing things that you've already seen for the most part and you've already reviewed. And it's already been reviewed three or four times by several different entities. So it's it seems like an intimidating process, but really at that point, it's just X's and O's. And, and so it shouldn't be that intimidating. Now, Kevin, we're coming up on some time here. I do want to get through a couple more things before we close the conversation. But you know, there's several different types of mortgages, right? There, you hear 30-year fixed, you hear 20-year, 15-year, you hear things called arms or adjustable rate mortgages, seven and ones, things like that. Let's talk about a couple of these d- different things real quick. First of all, let, let's talk about fixed rate mortgages or fixed term mortgages, I should say. Most most common, I would think, is the 30-year mortgage. Can you talk about what that means when you have a fixed term mortgage? Yeah, so uh, definitely 30-year is our most popular product. I think that uh, a lot of clients, when they first start the mortgage buying process, their parents or you know whoever they trust says, go get pre-approved and see what their 30-year mortgage rate is. So it's that's one of the rates that, that everybody wants to see what that option is. And it's and it's a great 
pool. It's fixed for 30 years. So you get an interest rate that's fixed for 30 years at a long period of time, especially with now with the historic interest rates that are so low. You have the ability to fix in this really low interest rate for a long period of time. And so uh, that's what the 30-year gives you basically fixed rate exposure for 30 years of 15, 20. Those are our three most uh, basic terms. And basically what I could tell you is that typically most first-time home buyers will go into like a 30-year because um, they're just starting out in their career and they want to buy a, a bigger house and they haven't got promoted and they don't have a lot of cash flow. And then once they get into it a little bit, they start to get increases in their salary and then they want to pay their house off and then they may slide down to a 20 or 15. Now you can always choose whatever term you want. So if you wanted a 25 year or a 18 year term, you could get that. It's just, it always goes off of the higher uh, rate. If you're at a 25 year term, you wouldn't get the 20-year rate, you'd get the 30-year rate. And if you were at an 18-year term, you wouldn't get the 15-year rate, you'd get the 20-year. So those are typically the terms that we have. So so those are just your fixed amortization loans or just fixed end mortgages. So they basically um, give you a starting point and an ending point. And you have an amortization table. It'll basically show you this is, if you pay your minimum payment, every month and don't ever pay a a dime more or don't ever miss any payments, this is where your principal balance is going to be after payment 10, after payment 200, you know, all the way down the line. So it's fixed for that 360 months for the 30 years or 240 for 20 or 180 for 15, whatever term you select. So it's fixed for that amount of time. And that's the key. It's fixed. You know what that rate's going to be, what your payment's going to be for the life of the term. Now, a 30-year, that's the longest you would possibly go. If you cut it down to a 20, let's say, that would typically mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kevin, but if you cut it to a shorter term, that would typically mean a higher monthly payment. Is that correct? That is correct. But you know, nowadays, what we've been seeing with the rates um, that have changed, so sometimes they'll, they'll get in at a 30-year, like 4.5%, but then the market will come down and they can get 25 on a 20. And so sometimes you have the ability to refinance and keep the payment similar to what you're currently paying now and cut a bunch of years off the, the term of your loan. Got it. Let's talk about the other type of loan that you hear about, and that's adjustable rate or ARM. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I really love that product for the right person and for the right reason. So as I said, the the highest percentage of clients that I have probably select a 30-year mortgage. That doesn't always mean that it's the best financial tool that we have. So if you're in a situation where you're going to be accepting a new job or you're going to be moving within a three to five to seven-year period... The bank's going to charge you security to have that rate for the 30-year period. So the rate's going to be higher on a 30-year fix than it would be on a fixed adjustable rate mortgage, like a seven-year ARM. Because basically, ARM means adjustable rate mortgage. So it's fixed for that period of time. So the bank's only giving you that fixed rate of exposure for the shorter period of time. So the rates are lower. Gotcha. And there's no prepayment penalty. If used correctly, it can save you thousands of dollars in interest and over the life of the loan. And it can really help you to leverage your mortgage into a vehicle that's helping you to increase your net worth instead of treating it as like a, a negative debt. And so if you're in a situation where you know that you're going to be selling in three to five years, or you're going to be upsizing, downsizing, but take a look at the arm, because if you don't need that exposure for 30 years, you could maybe benefit by getting a lower interest rate with one of those products. And then the other thing is there are no prepayment penalties on them anymore. So you could sell it and pay it off because I have a lot of clients that'll be selling a couple properties and retiring. And so they're, they don't want a mortgage. And so they'll be using their assets to pay it off. And so they can take a five-year or seven-year while they're uh, settling their estates and getting rid of properties and selling assets. They can use that product. And then whenever they get the cash raised, then they could pay it off and then uh, they can go on uh, with their life and retirement or, or whatever they like. But I think it's a it's an underutilized product. I think it has a tremendous advantage. The average life of a mortgage right now is three to five years, oh, wow. three to five years. So most people are taking a 30-year mortgage. They're only in their house for three to five years. And then the bank's charging them security to have that rate for the longer period of time. 
So the seven years, I think there's a lot of stats out there to say that you're going to have a major life event every seven years. You're going to get married. You're going to get a new job. You're going to have a kid. You're going to get divorced. You're going to retire. You're Whatever is going to happen. Seven years, we're constantly recreating ourselves. And so you take a mortgage out for 30 years and then you decide, hey, I want to put a pool in or I want to put an addition on or we had another child and we need to put on another bedroom. And then you refinance that mortgage or you sell it because you want to get a bigger house or downsize. You're going to cost yourself money when you could have looked at it going with a fixed rate adjustable plan and t- paying a cheaper rate. So no, that makes absolute sense. And, and I'm a huge proponent in looking at all of the deals. When when a client comes to me and say, hey, look, uh, you know, I'm going to put 20% down on a 30-year fixed mortgage because that's the way it should be done. Well, I, I try to tell a client, let's open up our, our, our way of thinking about this. Let's explore other options. Let's talk about all of the different tools and products that are our, at our disposal. And let's see what might also fit. Because to your point, Kevin, some of these other products might make more sense for the right client. I'm sorry to do this. I just want to go back and just touch on a couple quick higher level things about the arm. So the the loan terms are from five years to 30 years and five-year increments with locked interest rates. So basically, your interest rate is fixed on adjustable rate mortgage for that time. So if you're on a five-year adjustable rate mortgage, your interest rate is fixed for five years. Then after the fifth year, it has the ability to adjust. Uh, Depending on the terms, it could be once a year on its anniversary date or seven years, it's fixed for seven years, 10 years, it's fixed for 10 years. This affects your payment. And it, you know, basically, once you're out of that five year or seven year, so let's say you take out an adjustable rate mortgage and you're thinking you're going to go take a new job in California, and then you decide, hey, I'm going to stay put and you don't want to uh, sell your home, and your goes, it basically goes into the adjustment period. Typically, it's based on a margin and an index, and that could end up usually increasing depending on what the market's doing at that time. And so it'll increase once a year on its anniversary date, and that first adjustment is a market correction, basically adjustment where it could go up to, you know, typically on the program, could go up to 5%. So it could be substantial. So a lot of that's the biggest thing is that you don't want to go into that type of program if you if you know for sure that after five or seven years, it's not going to be something that's going to be uh, something that you want to stay in long-term. It's more of a short-term option. But with that said, we have clients that utilize it for five or seven years. And then if they stay in the home, we just do a refinance at that time, go into another fixed adjustable rate mortgage for another five to seven years, and basically just constantly keep looking at their mortgage as a moving investment. You don't put your assets in a vehicle and just forget about them. You constantly are working on getting a better mix and keep an eye on what stocks are performing. It's the same thing with your mortgage assets and your interest rates. So you want to continue to manage that as well. And so that's something that I would uh, recommend. So I just wanted to clear up a couple things there just to make sure that we are on the same page. Great. Now, Kevin, let's talk about putting a down payment down. Typically, people put 20% down. That's historically and traditionally the way that uh, a lot of people think about mortgages. Let's talk about that versus putting less down, putting, let's say, 10% down. What does that mean if you put less than 20% down? Yeah, absolutely. The the 20% uh, rule is something that came into effect uh, when mortgages and home buying really became a, a popular adventure for most of the working class Americans. And back, you go back date to like the Great Depression uh, era, the banks would call in loans. And so you could get a mortgage and the bank could say, hey, all right, we need you to pay this in full or we're going to take your house. And so that, and I still run into clients all the time. I still have that fear that's going to happen. And what I can sort of say is that, and working 24 years in the industry, that the, the, the banks do not want to be in real estate. So they pretty much, and now with all these foreclosure protection programs and everything that's out there, there's really a great opportunity to make sure that everything's being provided for you to keep. And so now with that, the standard rule of thumb used to be 20% down. So basically, when you look at the foundations of lending, that they basically came up with the the strategy that if you saved up to 20%, 
and you put that money down and you borrowed the 80% that you weren't going to default because you worked hard and you have skin in the game. You have you worked hard for your down payment to put that money down. And so you're going to be a good risk on that debt. And so that's where the 20% came in. And so nowadays, we wanted and a lot of banks and a lot of lobbying and a lot of things that were going on was basically saying, hey, we want to give more people the opportunity to have that great experience of home buying and home ownership in our country. We're in the greatest country in the world. Everybody should have their own home. Not everybody has 20%. So what they did is they came up with private mortgage insurance, which is PMI, which is any type of insurance, but it's specifically not really for the client. It's for the bank. So it protects the bank's interest in what they're giving you, what they consider a higher risk loan. So, you know, you can, we have loan programs uh, options now up to 3% down. So you can put as minimum, a minimum, the least amount of 3% down and still get a, a mortgage option and be able to buy a home instead of renting. And if you're a veteran, we can go up to 100%. Or if you're buying in a rural area, you can go up to 100% and have really no down payment. And in some of those situations, you get a seller to kick in and, and actually give you money for your closing costs. So the opportunity out there to get away from renting and to achieve home ownership has never been greater. Rates are low. We have programs with low down payment options. So it's really, really unique time out there in history for everyone to take advantage of. But more specifically in regards to 20% versus PMI. So PMI is called private mortgage insurance, basically an insurance provider, and they insure that gap. So if you put 10% down, so the bank says, okay, up to 80%, that's where we've, we need to have that 20% cushion. If something goes wrong, we have to foreclose on the house. We want to be able to know that we have that cushion in there. We can pay a real estate agent to sell the house, fix it up and not lose money. If you're going to, we want to be able to give more loans. So they have this insurance company come in and insure that 10% gap. That's what private mortgage insurance is. And so it's basically giving you just insurance on the additional risk and for the bank giving you a higher risk loan. Now, the good news about mortgage insurance is that once you get down under 80%, they'll, it'll come off. And this used to be a challenge. I remember when I first started out in the business 20 some years ago, lenders weren't too excited to get mortgage insurance off. And it was a little process. And now with all the laws and regulations and the CFPB, once you're at like 80%, right under 80%, 78%, the bank has to take the mortgage insurance off. So the downside of mortgage insurance is it basically goes to nothing. You know, a lot of times you'll pay $100, $150 a month just for an insurance policy. It doesn't pay down your principal or anything, but it just allows you to have a higher risk loan and bring more money or less money out of pocket for down payment when you first buy that home. But it's still, if you do the math, it's still going to be better than renting. If you're paying a thousand, two thousand a month in rent versus paying a hundred dollars in mortgage insurance, it would still be definitely a better investment to go ahead and, and start building up some equity on your own. Sure. Now, one of the things that I'll highlight here, Kevin, is that when I look at a possible deal for a client, a lot of people get hung up on that 20% down to avoid the PMI. And, and that I, I get that. But you know what I always tell a client is, let's look at all the options. right? Because in an, in an environment where, let's just hypothetically say, we're in a very low interest rate environment. okay? If the, I'll call it the base mortgage rate that you're being offered is, is low to begin with, and paying a little bit of PMI on top of that doesn't really affect your monthly cash flow situation and you can still afford that payment it could allow you to keep that additional you know let's just hypothetically say 10% down payment in your pocket if you would have otherwise put 20% down but instead you're going to do 10% down because that cash flow and that monthly mortgage payment is still well within your cash flow then you keep that 10% difference in your pocket and theoretically it could be invested for the long term and over time with average market returns, you know that money could grow to the point where you are making more money on your investment than the interest that you're paying on on the mortgage. So, you know what I always tell a client is, yes, twenty percent is the target. However, you have to be open minded, especially in low interest rate environments, and you need to consider putting less down because that could ultimately mean that you keep more money in the market working for you. Kevin, we're running up against the clock here. Let's talk about two more questions. I'm going to give you briefly. So, in a low interest rate environment, a lot of people throw out the term refinance. What at what point does refinancing a, a current existing mortgage make sense? 
Refinancing makes sense a lot of times. I mean, there's a lot of life, any life situation change that you encounter, a refinancing could be a good opportunity for you. I've seen clients that refinance um, to pay for kids' weddings, pay for kids' colleges. But typically, as far as if you're just happy with everything, you're doing your savings, you're investing the way you should, and you just were saying, hey, maybe interest is a little high. What is a good rule of thumb? I usually use 1%. And and so if you're at an interest rate on a 30-year mortgage at 4% and you're a couple years in and rates have dropped down and now you can get 3% on a 30-year mortgage and maybe just stay at the same term or 27 years, that would make sense. Because anytime you do a refinance, you're going to have to pay closing costs. And in the state of Pennsylvania, one of the biggest closing costs you always have to pay is title insurance. It's always the largest cost on a refi. So on like a $300,000 loan, you're going to be looking around three grand for title insurance. So typically, I think rule of thumb, you're looking about three to 5,000 in average closing costs. So it has to be worth it. And so 1% is worth it. And so that's what I, so if you're looking just to, to reduce rate, I think you got to look at 1%. If you're looking at term, I mean, it could always make sense. You know, I think you still use the 1% because of the closing costs, but if you can cut years off, that's great too. Now, the good thing about mortgages is if you're not going to save that much in interest, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to go ahead and refinance to just cut term because if you pay extra, your minimum payment, anything you pay above your minimum payment goes straight to principal with no interest. So to save yourself the three grand and refinancing it just to cut a couple of years off doesn't always make sense to do it that way. Now, if you're looking to put an addition on, you have credit card debt, your kid's going to college, you need to do a home improvement, whatever, definitely take a look at the mortgage because even though you're going to have a builder come and say, oh, we'll offer you 0% for 12 months, you know, the reason why they do that is because most clients don't pay it off in zero in 12 months. And that 0% goes to 20%. And where you can get a mortgage rate of three and a half. And so you got to constantly take a look at what uh, vehicles you're using to achieve everything that you're trying to achieve. And that makes a lot of sense. There's flexibility. And, and when you're looking at possibly refinancing, that could be an option. You can use it as a financial tool, but it has to make sense. You have to come out on the other side in, in a better position than you were at the front end. Kevin, we're going to ask one more question here before we wrap it up. In, in a low interest rate environment or in a situation, let's say it's a seller's market and there's a lot, a lot of people looking for homes and not a lot of inventory out there. In that hypothetical situation, you could find yourself as a buyer in a competitive bid situation or as a, in a situation where there are multiple offers on the, on the property that you want. Do you have any you know, tips or tricks or, or things that you would suggest to the buyer that might help them win the deal? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have never in 24 years of uh, being in mortgage professional have seen a market like we have today. The lack of inventory has really drove prices up, especially in the Pittsburgh region. And we stand about three to 5% appreciation a year, and but we have one of the lowest cost of living in the country. And to see some of these values that are going up 50, 100,000, I mean, you're seeing offers by 20, 30 people that you're competing with at the time that you put your offer in. I mean, it is really, really competitive. And so that's one of the reasons why getting the pre-approval up front is so important and talking to your mortgage provider. So I think if you have a nice local mortgage provider in your area that the real estate agents know and trust um, and that they can look up and say, hey, this guy's right down the street. I see him at the grocery store. I mean, that can go a long way for you in helping to get your offer accepted. As far as like the technical financial stuff, I think one of the biggest things that I see is obviously more money than a couple of ways. One, if you put 20% down, your offer is stronger than somebody who's putting 3% down. If you're putting more hand money down, I've seen some people just win it by putting 50,000 hand money down opposed to five. And then you can also instruct your agent on the way that you put in your sales contract. There's one thing that's called a mortgage contingency. And that basically says that you're going to get a mortgage. And if the mortgage doesn't go through, you're not going to buy the house. If you're going to buy it in cash and you have cash to back it up, you can remove that mortgage contingency. And there's also an appraisal contingency. If the house doesn't appraise, you can back out. And so sometimes you can make the seller and make your offer more competitive by removing those contingencies. If you have cash to back it up, if you want to go in as a cash buyer. And then the other thing you can do is you can put an escalation clause in there where you say, okay, I'm going to offer you 140, but you know, 
I'll go up to 160 for this house. And it's just like one of those auction sites online. And so as the bids come in, constantly taking high bid. And so that way you can stay involved and hopefully win the house that you want. Quick closing is a big one. If you can show the ability to close fast. So whatever you can do to alleviate the risk for the seller um, will help put you in a situation to win. And I will tell too, one of the things that I use and then what I recommend to my clients for a property that you really want is what I call the love letter. If you write a letter and it can be handwritten, that makes an even bigger impression. But if you write a letter to the seller about you and your family and your background and why you love that property and what you're going to do with it. And I've done this before personally, include pictures of your family. It's a great way of creating a personal personal relationship. And that, that tends to also put you on, in good graces with the seller. So Kevin, we do have to wrap it up here. We've talked about a lot, but if there's one thing that you want our listeners to, to know and understand, what would that be? What's that last thought? Yeah, I, we're always here available for you. Please feel free to reach out to us at any time. I have a whole team of professionals here that, that are willing to assist you. Uh, you can go to thegeezagroup.com and you can apply online. My office line is 412-643-2063. My cell phone is 412-425-1120. Or my email is just kevin, K-E-V-I-N dot giza, G-I-Z-A at mycmortgage, all spelled out, dot com. Kevin. I appreciate it. Thank you for the wealth of knowledge. Thanks for spending so much time with us and, and helping our listeners kind of understand what they should be thinking about. And, and again, that's all the time that we have today. Thanks for tuning in here. And, and just like Kevin, I, I like to work with qualified experts that, that can help you in, in finding the best lending solutions that are out there. And, and just like you, you should be working with professionals that are qualified to help with your wealth plan, because there's so many different products and investments and strategies that are out there that it's simply in your best interest to engage with a financial advisor before doing it on your own. That said, if you're looking for a financial advisor, if you're looking to learn more about my practice, please reach out by going to michaeldukovich.com and that's D-U-K-O-V-I-C-H. And on the website, you'll find a great, a great wealth of information there on a lot of different financial topics. But ultimately, I'm looking to work with people that understand you shouldn't be doing it alone and people who value the plan and people that recognize that life's greatest returns are only realized when you invest beyond your money. So remember, it's your money, it's your life, take control. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Your Money podcast with financial advisor, Mike Dukovich. Make sure you click the subscribe button now so you will be notified when new podcasts are released. If you want to know more about working with Mike, please call 724-933-4446 or visit michaeldukovich.com. It's your money. It's your life. Take control. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of RBC Wealth Management. All opinions and estimates constitute the speaker's judgment as of the date of this recording and are subject to change without notice and are provided in good faith but without legal responsibility. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial services provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. RBC Wealth Management does not provide tax or legal advice. All decisions regarding the tax or legal implications of your investment should be made in connection with your independent tax or legal advisor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. Investment and insurance products offered through RBC Wealth Management are not insured by the FDIC or any other federal government agency, are not deposits or other obligations of or guaranteed by a bank or any bank affiliate, and are subject to investment risks, including the possible loss of the principal amount invested. RBC Wealth Management is a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINR, and SIPC.